Welcome to the Business of You podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Gogos. This podcast is dedicated to helping you uncover how to turn your big idea into big business and grow your personal brand into the business of your dreams. Each week, I'll talk to founders of all kinds of businesses, exploring how they launched and grew their companies. Behind every successful business is an epic journey, one that can serve as a roadmap to help you grow yours. The Business of You is all about frank conversations and unique business wisdom for the entrepreneur. It's a chance to tune into the story behind the brand and retrace the path of those who walked this road before you so you can pave your own road to success. Welcome to The Business of You. Lady Goldwire is my guest today on The Business of You, and she is a real powerhouse in the construction industry in Florida. She is a state-licensed general contractor and building code administrator, certified through the International Code Council. Lady has over 17 years of experience in the construction industry, and her primary focus has been on the creation and expansion of small to medium-sized construction firms. She also has found a passion for hemp construction, which is both sustainable and economical. Lady is extremely dedicated to mentoring and empowering women in business. If you are hoping to get into the construction industry or in the construction industry as a woman or even as a gentleman, this episode is for you. Enjoy. Welcome, Lady Goldwire. So awesome to have you on the Business of You podcast today. How's your day going so far? I'm well, I'm well. How about you? I'm doing well also. Uh, I know we both have gotten our doggies under control for a little while, so hopefully we'll hear no barking in the background. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, I just text my daughter and said, keep the dog under control. <laughs> That's so funny. I do the same thing. Well, lady, would love to hear your story of how you started your very interesting construction development company called Bryn Mawr. So if you can tell us a little bit about your journey and how you chose to be in this industry and how you got to launching your company. So um, I think I actually started my company. Um, I think the journey was probably a mistake um, or, or more or less a, a result of not having any choice, quite honestly. Um, uh, I think I shared with you pre-recording that, you know, I left home very early from home, had kids very early. And while I was um, conditioned to want to move into the space of going to college, it just wasn't feasible. It didn't make sense. Um, there was really no way to pull that off as a young mom um, of three small children. And so the, um, age thought, is, the age of 16, right? I was 16 when I had my first child and I had had all three by the time I was age 20. And so with that, I was um, just forced to try to find some areas where I could excel, provide for these kids. Um, and construction just made sense to me. I had been around it all my life. I had um, had a situation where we were um, 
just trying to figure out how I would navigate how I was going to move about the rest of my life. And because my father had been a block mason and I had saw kind of the ins and outs of how construction worked and I was intrigued by it, you know, I started making um, strides towards securing uh, my space in the construction world. Um, I did a lot of interning for small construction firms. I shadowed my pops a lot um, while he served in the capacity as a foreman for some companies. Um, The industry kind of took a turn for him in the early 90s, and he ultimately went off to work for a local municipality, but the love for construction still remained. And so whenever he had an opportunity to do side jobs, I was there. Um, But intricately in interested in like the hows and the moving about of projects, the logistics and the money, the the possibilities of how you can make money. And so um, probably after about 10 or 15 jobs that went left, I said, you know what? I want to be, I think, an entrepreneur. And I think I have the ability to learn the business um, and started doing all of the testing started putting myself in spaces where I could observe. And ultimately, I um, got to a space where um, I made the jump and decided to test as a general contractor. Um, I got that license. And then the next logical step for me was to kind of go through the red tape of incorporating and putting myself out there as a general contractor. It was tough. That was 17 years ago, just kind of getting people to buy into the concept that, you know, I knew what I was doing, that I had a skill set that could be trusted. And, um, you know, it took a while, but fast forward 17 years, I definitely you know, appreciate where I've landed and all of the legwork it took to get there. Um, Starting the business was difficult, but it was organic. And so, um, you know, that's kind of how I got there. And, and, And when I give it a lot of thought, looking back, I think it probably worked out exactly the way it was supposed to. Question for you. You had mentioned that you college was not for you. So what did you end up studying or putting your time into to learn your your craft? So I did a lot of vocation um, school. I went to a local school and did some testing here um, in South Florida. Um, I did a lot of again, interning for these construction companies that were doing these smaller projects. So people would always give me the pushback, like, lady, you don't actually want to be out there hammered a nail. And there was some truth to that statement. Um, I didn't want to be out there from the standpoint of of hammer and nail, but I wanted to know that if I had or needed to understand what was happening, that I could uh, maneuver in those spaces. I also wanted to garner the respect of a lot of my colleagues. And so I would find myself or or have myself assigned to uh, a lot of the field work that was happening in um, the or on the jobs that I was working with, with those companies that I was working alongside. Only after I got or felt comfortable and met a lot of the criteria required to actually get a license here in Florida, you've got to have like four years of apprenticeship. So after I built that up, um, that's kind of when I ventured out on my own. Um, You know, The experience from vocation and trade is unique in that you can go to school 
and learn these things. But the best experience is on the job training. And because I knew traditional classroom settings were challenging, even before I had children, I was always, you know, I, my, we, I went to private school. Um, I, I did a lot of gifted programming. I was placed in a lot of gifted classes, but I didn't like the rigidity of the classroom very early on. I was always an explorer and, uh, and I ventured off a lot. And because of that, I just knew intrinsically that I don't know that, you know, four years of traditional education is going to work for me, even if I didn't have these other roadblocks to kind of cloud my judgment. Traditional or non-traditional education for me, the, the vocation, the being in the field, the, the hands-on, the on-the-job learning, on-the-job training was so fulfilling. It was flexible enough for me to do what I needed to do and tend to my children. But it was so fulfilling in the different tricks of the trade, the interactions, the social aspects of it that, you know, before I looked up the four years of, you know, learning the business, learning the trades, those things had, it, it flew by. It literally flew by. And so um, I think I got it right with regard to understanding who I was as an individual and the modes in which I learned best. I think what I've learned in having three children, um, two of which all of them matriculated through college, two of them completed undergraduate studies. One has some graduate study under her belt and the other one's completed graduate study and is an educator. But I have one child, my middle son, who's exactly like me, more of an explorer, more, and just understanding as a parent how, um, how important it is to allow your children to kind of just lean into themselves and um, fall onto those things that enhance who they are as individuals is important. I didn't have that growing up. My parents were, my mom was a missionary, college educated. My father was a Navy veteran and, and, and very rigid, you know? And so they had a plan for me and it was, you follow this plan. I found myself, because I didn't like the way that felt coming up, being a little bit more flexible with my own children and allowing them to decide what works best for them. And interestingly, I have this blend of children who chose traditional education and a child who chose non-traditional education. And it's worked out fine for them both ways. And so I guess that's a long-winded response to just understanding how I navigated knowing that, you know, a trade vocational route to education was best for me. Mm -hmm. That's amazing that you had the foresight at such a young age, because I think so many people end up in careers and because of what they studied in college and taken a path that their parents wanted for them. Right. And because, you know, we're most of us don't really know what we want to do at 16, 17, 18 years old. So we go down that path that most people around us think we should take and then find ourselves really unsatisfied. Right. In our 30s, 40s and 50s um, and wanting to do the thing that lights us up. So. That's pretty commendable, especially having um, three you. young kids to figure that out. Who who was watching the kiddos while you were at work? And, and that was interesting. And so my mom was very instrumental, but because my father was so strict and not happy that I did not 
go in the direction that he went. He kind of tied my mom's hand as to how much help she could provide. But I had an amazing network of cousins, um, aunts, um, my grandmother. At the time, my great-grandmother was living and she was home a lot. And, you know, it really, when you hear people say it takes a village, it does. My children, um, I found a way to send them to private school when they were younger. And so there were extended hours there, like non-traditional, I mean, like not, not like traditional school where they get out at a certain time or whatever. So between aftercare programming and, um, um, you know, just teachers who saw that I was young and having a hard time, people were just pouring in from everywhere to kind of give me the help and the uplift that I needed. And then as a result, I was able to pour into my children. And so I did a lot of taking kids to work with me. I always managed to find those jobs that would allow me to do that. I did a lot of, um, you know, working 11 to seven so that I had it, you know, sometimes I look back, there was one period that I worked one job from eight to five, got off and had enough time to get them situated and went to the other job, 11 to seven. So that when I got off at seven, I was kind of really having enough time to take them to school and get to the next job. And I think I did that for about two, three years, but it was really that kind of um, just putting your head in the dirt and just going. Cause you know, you can't get through it unless you go through it. It's just, that simple. Um, and the time passed, you know, the time passed. Um, but definitely getting into a space where I was able to establish my own business and create my own hours and, you know, work my way into this, um, this, this, uh, cycle of being able to kind of call my own shots. You know, that was the best gift tied to choosing, trade and vocation. I've people's electric starts to go left, people's ACs and don't don't turn on, their plumbing backs up. They're going to call you and if you I knew enough to position myself in such a way um you know to be the conduit as to how do you get these people in a space where I'm servicing needs that they have by way of aligning myself with other tradesmen and creating this kind of network. It really open the space for me to um, expand my business one, but to sustain my business um, to the other point. Right. Right. Yeah, totally. Well, I can see that your, um, your years and your youth, you know, really multitasking some really important things from raising kids to, to working construction um, where the stakes are pretty high well prepared you for the work that you're doing today. Yes, it did. Um, you mentioned some really interesting stats. And uh, when we were chatting before we started uh, recording, um, can you share those? Because I, I think those are really eye opening. And again, just like really speaks to your your grit and your resilience and um, really, I think, makes you stand out even more in your industry. Oh, wow. So um, I think I was sharing with you uh, just having a conversation with my pops and, you know, just giving him some insight as to, you know, what this journey has been like and and how much we've done. You know, I'm a daddy's girl for the most part. 
But um, we also have these tugs back and forth. My father didn't have any boys. I always think to myself that I'm probably um, on the proxy for the son he didn't have. Um, But I was telling him or explaining to him, you know, going into and having or getting his blessing, you know, to do construction, his thought was, okay, lady, you know, you can, you know, it'd be great if you go into construction, you'd make an excellent bookkeeper and, and, or, or he ventured off to think, oh, maybe you should do construction law, which was more college that I wasn't really feeling at the time. Um, but when I told him, no, I want to be into the the grit of this industry. I want to be a contractor. He was very, very apprehensive and very, very unsure that we could pull it off. Um, but in recapping that conversation with him a couple of weeks ago, I told him that, um, you know, I had learned via the Bureau of Labor and Statistics that there were only um, 36 thousand general contractors registered in the country. Um, I went on to share with him that 9% of those um, 36,000 contractors were women. And then I told him, but dad, guess what? There's only 3% of that number that um, are women of color. And so effectively pops, there's only 97 or so, there's less than a hundred of us who are operating in the capacity and at the level I am. And he couldn't believe it. Like, you know, he couldn't believe it. A, he was very apologetic about some of his views as to what women could do, but moreover, what his daughter was going to be able to pull off. And so that was super rewarding. And, um, you know, it's just another testament to the need though, for us to bring more women into the fold, right? And um, with the industry now doing what it's doing post-pandemic, with the money coming in um, from every direction for infrastructure improvements and people are, are, are addressing housing market crisis needs right now, there is a space for us, the way we think, the way we move, how we do business, where we're where we're guiding our counterparts. Um, I'm finding that men are leaning into some of the unique skill sets that we have as women. And as a result, they're starting to make the ask for us to make our presence known. And so those statistics do two things. They do kind of make me feel good on the inside about what I have accomplished, but it also puts me back on track with regard to my contribution to making sure more women come on board, um, that we create more seats at this, you know, phenomenal table of profitability, of productivity, um, of effectiveness and, um, you know, just have them here with me because it's super fun when I'm I'm in a room and it's more than just me and we're having conversations about how we're working through our problems, how we're working through reaching solutions, you know? Um, I, I just, I just can't speak to um, how grateful I am for the opportunity and the way things have unfolded in my life. Because certainly when you're having children as young as I had them, um, you're trying to figure out your life while your friends are in college or having these um, really, you know, natural experiences as young adults, you know, you're not having them. You're wondering your, your whole way, 
if, you know, you chartered the right course. And so to see it play out favorably has just been um, super encouraging for me. And I hope that it serves as some degree of encouragement for, for women who may not have the same story, but who have challenges nonetheless, who are super interest, interested in entering into the industry. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You had also shared that um, equal pay, equal work, that's a very passionate uh, topic of yours. Um, and you were also uh, serving at, at some point in your life as a public official. Do you... Uh, <laughs> you want to share a little bit about that experience again? I, you know, I will share just about everything I can about that experience. So in addition to being a general contractor, um, I'm a building official as well. Um, I had the opportunity to come on board as the building official in the city that I had been born and raised in. There had never been a female who had held that position before. I was eager to enter into the role. And I was under the impression that in going into that space, I would be widely embraced. Also very few in the country too, right? There's there's even less um, women building officials than there probably are women general contractors. Um, To become a building official, typically you license with your state, but you would certify with the International Code Council. And that kind of gives you recognition in all 50 states and all U.S. territories. And so when you're testing on building safety and building codes, you're testing on the laws and the regulations spanning in those areas, all 50 states, all U.S. territories. It's a lot of material for all of the disciplines, plumbing, electric, mechanical, you know, um, some of the civil areas, you know, it, it, it is it is a task that is daunting and it was one of the most challenging of my life. Well, when I went to work for this municipality, Because there were a certain amount of testing modules that needed to be completed to get the building official license, Um, there was a standard license that you had to have, but there was an exemption that the state allowed you to fall under until you secured a standard license. And that exemption required you to hold a license for at least a decade, at least 10 years as a general contractor and architect or certified engineer. Because I had the 10 years, they gave me the exemption, which would have allowed me to test out during my tenure as a provisional building official, becoming a standard one. There were lots of developers in our community who had already previously worked out or made arrangements with the prior building official. But those arrangements were inclusive of limited fees to be remitted to the city. We were building, these developers were building $300 million buildings, but wanting to pay permit fees associated with $10 million construction. And so because I was a woman and because I was the first and because I felt like there's so many people eyes on me and watching and just the, you know, just the integrity associated with the job we hold, there were spaces where, nope, you need to pay the fees that are due to the municipality. And we aren't going to be able to take shortcuts about how you go about getting inspections and everything. And it's funny how the universe works, because shortly after having been dismissed from the municipality, 
there were buildings falling down all around us here in South Florida. You, it went, you know, and it was like, maybe kind of some of the things that she was implementing and wanting to see carried out to completion makes sense. A lot of the um, regulations that I were, was pushing for that made developers unhappy, that moved them in this space to pursue me relentlessly are now federal mandates as a result of life safety issues and some of the calamity we saw here in South Florida. And so we talked about this earlier. We said, you know, what happens to you is happening for you. The thing that happened to me in that municipality and then events that had nothing to do with me in neighborhood cities surrounding the municipality really put me on the map as a subject matter expert for life safety, building code, officiating, and just understanding the nuance of getting around people who want to do the development, um, but not necessarily them understanding the importance of doing good business. Um, I have, as a result of that um, experience, picked up clients that I could have never imagined. You know, some of my clients I've worked for, the Pillsbury family, the Quaker Oats family, um, the jeweler, David Yerman, um, Charles Schwab, that entity, like these developers are coming in and they're recognizing that in addition to having a skill set, on the side of being a contractor, understanding their plight relative to construction timelines, coming in on under budget, et cetera, et cetera. They know that I also understand the building code aspect of it and the officiating elements of it. And I've been able to create this niche where I hybrid the two skill sets and kind of hold myself out as a um, sought after consultant. I wouldn't have been able to do that had I not been thrust in the newspapers as a rogue building official, as a developer, non-friendly building official, as a, it wouldn't have happened. But it also, you know, um, as unfortunate as the circumstances were about, you know, how happenstance some building officials can be when it comes to, you know, greasing pockets and taking these deals and skipping steps that keep people safe, that keep people alive. It changed the trajectory of my career. And so looking back, I was arrested for holding myself out to be a building official under the premise that I wasn't a real building official because I didn't have the standard license. That was in spite of the state issuing the licensing that allowed me to do it. The developers, a lot of the media, they held me out and I spent 21 months on indictment on a misdemeanor charge only to have it dropped the day of trial because they kept saying, just take just take some sort of plea. Just And I was just like, that's absolutely insane. Lawyers tried to get me to do pre-trial interventions and all the, and I'm like, I'm not doing that. Um, there's a lot to be said for the voice that women have, for the, the decisions that we make intuitively from a common sense standpoint, not even taking into equation the black and white of our building codes that made me really good at what I do. It wasn't because I'm super smart. It wasn't because I have a really good handle or wasn't just because of those things that have a really good handle on the code. 
I think everything that set me apart and put me in a space of redemption was tied to me being a woman, tied to me just intrinsically knowing that this doesn't feel right, this isn't right, and I'm going to stand my ground. And in doing that, um, I got to get into spaces where I started examining, I was working 16 hours a day at this municipality sometimes, had never taken a vacation. I had been diagnosed with uterine cancer. So I had treatment and surgery on a Wednesday. They would not give me the time off. So I was back to work on a Monday, never missed a beat, raised or collected over $13 million in revenues that were kind of, will turn a blind eye to, that were due to the city. And I don't necessarily know that a man couldn't have done the same thing. He certainly wouldn't have had the the, the uterine cancer issues, but um, I think it would have looked a lot different when I compared it to my salary versus what all of my predecessors had made and what the people who've made coming into that role after. In some instances, we were $25,000 different annually. And that put me in the space where it was like, you know what? I don't want to come across as super litigious because it's always better to settle whatever grievances you have, in my opinion, outside of court. When I thought about the um, trajectory that I was on, the path that I had been placed on, the fact that um, I was a woman in a non-traditional industry, right? And that I'm working around men all of the time who I'm pouring into, but I'm making so much less more you know, so much less. It's like, that's problematic. It's not necessarily problematic for me because I have work that I can do on the outside and make up the ground. But for the woman that comes in and this is her livelihood, to know that her counterpart is right next to her making $25,000 less when she's working double time, the first one there, the last one to leave, the person where all of responsibility lays at her feet. Lady, if you don't champion and take advantage of the opportunity here to showcase where we can fix this and get it right, then the whole point is null and void. And um, that's kind of how that happened. But again, I wouldn't have had it happen any differently because what happened to me in that scenario definitely happened for me. And it happened for a lot of other women who will benefit from some of the strides we made via that litigation. And the safety standard improvement throughout the state as well. I mean, that's massive. Think of the lives that potentially could be saved right in the future. Potentially. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's, you know, I live Riviera beach uh, was where I was born and raised. And we have a beautiful Island singer Island that it's attached to and it's intracoastal. Um, We have high rises along the entire um, intercoastal and, you know, those buildings need certification um, because of the salt erosion and some of the exposures that they had. What happened in Surfside in Miami, 60 miles South of us, it's not uncommon for it to occur here. In fact, last week we have a building, the atrium, the parking garage, you park up under it, it collapsed. It's because we aren't certifying the buildings. We don't have professionals, um, you know, calling the developers onto the carpet because they much rather just play it nice, play it safe um, and not 
ruffle any feathers. A lot of these individuals need to be reelected. The difference with the position I held and what um, a lot of people don't understand about building officials, we typically answer to the governor. Um, Our responsibility um, is so grave and so important. Nobody's questioning the decisions that we make, not even the court of law. You have a building commission that will come in um, because they recognize all of the training that goes into understanding these codes. Judges don't even want to insert their opinions on a lot of the decision making because it is tied to life safety. People don't realize that building officials sign off on certificates of occupancy or they sign off on inspections or turn their eye to things that need to be done. And there is, um, you know, loss of life, much like what's happening from that Surfside event. That building official is looking at 98 counts of, you know, involuntary manslaughter. You've got that. And then it goes to um, negligent homicide. Who wants that at their feet? And so because of that, our statutes here in Florida says that there's no person who can interfere with the duties of the building official. You know what I mean? We have to make our um, grievances known to that commission and we have to talk to and interact with our governor and ensure that they're comfortable with the decisions that we're making. But To binge rules or turn a blind eye, it's never worth um, the outcome that could result in loss of life when you just don't follow the rules. You don't dot I's and you don't cross T's. And for me to find myself in that space and be a woman doing it was rewarding. Um, I was very, very open to a lot of the challenges that came about. I didn't understand them then, but I fully understand them now. And um, Again, I would just, my goal right now, my my motive in doing some of these types of interactions is to, to just encourage more women to kind of join the ranks because we need them there desperately. Yeah. Uh, no, it, it uh, I definitely can see how a woman, woman's attributes and strengths could be pivotal and key in this industry that you're, you're really heavily involved in and a thought leader in. I want to switch gears for a second here and talk about your company, Bryn Mawr, and when you were actually in the early stages of creating it. Um, The the word that keeps coming to my mind as you're speaking is that you're just so full of integrity. And I believe that when, um, as founders, our own core values are very much embedded in the business brand that we we create and we grow. And that doesn't matter what size the company is, whether it's small or large, right? Um, yes. That's there. So I just wonder if in the early years when you were launching Bryn Mawr, had you given any thought to what this brand will signify and symbolize? You know, the honest question to that is I didn't. And the honest question centering around integrity. You know, a lot of people would like to have you believe that you're born with um, integrity. And I think it's different. I think integrity evolves um, as we evolve as individuals. All of us naturally have this move towards what's good or bad, what's right or wrong. But I think integrity takes it to another level. And you learn through lived experience what you should be doing, what you shouldn't be doing. You know, a lot of people would say integrity is that thing that, you know, are you going to do the right thing when no one's looking? I was not always in that place. With three kids, very young, there were typically shortcuts I was willing to take. There were oftentimes things um, I was not 
willing to take a lot of time to think through. And so I've made a lot of rash mistakes, a lot of rash decisions that resulted in mistakes that ultimately um, could have landed me in a lot of trouble. But evolution, maturity, um, understanding as I got older, why, you know, having some degree of integrity and maintaining it matters having that as the standard to which to work towards, that's what um, came into play. The brand is always evolving as well. Um, At one point, I wanted to just show people that I could build uh, new construction out the ground and that was my thing. And then there was this shift in um, to a space of renovation. And then I found myself doing a lot of advocacy work for tradesmen who were having difficulties breaking into the industry who also didn't have um, traditional college to fortify them and their experiences. And now I'm in the space of just really working with developers and companies who want to get it right with the building departments, who want to, um, intru- you know, construct in the space of taking into consideration all of the life safety features and um, aspects that a lot of us are super concerned with now. We've got green and sustainable construction that's at the forefront. We'll probably talk about that a little bit. Um, You know, that's why I'm such a huge advocate of, of, um, you know, hemp construction. This idea of building with cannabis is 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 strange to us, but it's it's commonplace in in places like Canada and UK, and um, the the positive impacts it has on the environment is, is amazing. But you don't know these things, you don't get to these spaces, you don't get to enhance your brand until you learn these things, and then you go back and you add them to um, the core of of what you want your company to be. I say the core aspect of what my company um, is. Um, has relatively always remained the same. And that is just to more or less do good business with good people and facilitate good outcomes. Um, That is it across the board. Now, as we start adding to that, you know, those different elements that I talked about previously come into play, but the core is the same. And, And I didn't know when I started it, what it would look like 17 years later, what I knew was I needed something that I could start, that I could be proud of, that my children could ultimately say, you know, uh, you know, I could tie a legacy to and be okay with. And for that, I'm pleased. Um, It's gone exactly the way that it has gone. And that's my hope for anybody who's starting the business. Most people who are starting businesses aren't starting them from the standpoint or at least the sole standpoint of wanting to make money. They're starting them because they want to make a stamp on the world some way, somehow. Um, And I think if you're just leaning into just wanting to be impactful, um, wanting to be influential from the space of doing the best you can with what you have, I think the brand kind of follows its, you know, it makes and creates its own. It takes on a life of its own, I should say. Yeah, it does. It definitely does. Um, and, And it mirrors it mirrors our own personal lives to some extent, just like you mentioned, you know, you have this passion for hemp construction, mm-hmm. right? So that is probably a pretty major differentiator, I'm guessing, for your company. It is very major. Based on where you're located. Um, yeah. Florida. Yeah. Florida. We're struggling here with getting legislation across the board for cannabis to come into play. So that's the that's the road gap. But in dis- industrial hemp is kind of finding itself as the um, Moses' 
for getting this legislation done because people can see, people can make sense of the construction industrial you know uses more so than getting people to get behind the medicinal and recreational uses um when you start talking about or just bringing to the forefront the facts associated with hemp construction and those materials it's a fire resistant material it is a water um, and microbial resistant material. It is a pest resistant material. The insurance companies love it. Insurance companies have paid out on insurance claims for termite damage more than they have for all natural disasters put together. And a lot of people don't realize that. Most claims that are filed with insurance companies are a direct result of termite damage. And term yeah, and termites, although they're these small little nuisances, together they can bring down an entire structure. You look one day and everything's there and you pull the carpet back and you've got a complete hole in your floor and you don't know why. Insurance companies are looking for means to mitigate those payouts. Well, when you look at the fact that this stuff is water resistant, it's fire resistant, it's all of the things that insurance companies are met with when claims are filed. It's like, okay, yeah, bring this stuff, bring this stuff to the forefront. We want to know. Our challenge is you have your plastic distributors, your concrete distributors, your wood distributors, like, oh no, if we open, you know, if we open the gates and allow you in, you can use this material for just and manufacture it so it's effective and have or serve the same uses as a lot of that stuff. It gets a bit competitive. And that's been the resistance to getting it where it needs to be um, here in Florida, in addition to all of the um you know, bad narratives that go along with um cannabis that are just out there and super antiquated. Um but we're working on it. I had the pleasure of being one of the founding members for an organization out West called the U.S. Hemp Building Association. It has grown um, astronomically under the existing uh, leadership now. And they have been instrumental in getting the testing done needed to have industrial hemp, hemp Crete, um, hemp building products altogether moved into the space of building officials being accepting of it and its utilization across the country. And so slowly but surely, hemp is making its presence known. And I think once it gets to where it, it should be, that's probably all we'll be talking about. Um, people love the um, finishes associated with hemp, be it the flooring, the wall paneling, the insulation um, uh, components and, and properties, benefits that it offers. They love the hempcrete. Um, it, which is now a concrete substitute, so to speak, not totally because it's not for structural use, but it is for, you know, reinforcement type um, usages. The, the contractors love it. The building officials love it. Um, and the communities are starting to love it. And so brand, again, evolves with all of the things that kind of emerge as you kind of trickle along and, and figure your way out in your industry, figuring out how to pivot is what um, ensures that, you know, you keep the brand alive, I think. Agree. 100% agree, which is a perfect segue into what do you see in, in your future and in Bryn Mawr's future? 
Also, I think for me, I think I'm going to definitely be moving in the direction of advocacy. There's so much advocacy across the board um, in my life, um, just personal aspects that need um, further attention. Mental health for me, my son is 27 years old, was diagnosed with schizophrenia in college, and that is a challenge. Um, that can be very, very um, disturbing to kind of the cycle and the ebb and flow of how my family moves itself forward. But I'm not the only one who deals with that. I know and meet so many people. Um, I teach family to family two times out of the year um, with NAMI. I served two terms on the local board here. And that that those that classroom instruction is centered around teaching um, family members how to cope with the nuances associated with taking care of a loved one diagnosed with a mental health disorder. People would say, well, how does it tie to construction? I mean, building is building, building relationships, building and fortifying, um, you know, um, systems that help support community. It's all one thing. And because I think the the common thread in who I am is a builder. You know, I'm a relationship builder. Um, I'm a connector. Um, I'm a protector. I don't I don't know how to do and be anything else. I've learned those skill sets just very early on um, in life. And I think they're um, very much a part of who I am. And so in moving Brenmar forward, it's definitely going to take its shape and form by way of this vehicle for advocacy, advocacy for the hemp, advocacy for more women in, in, in these non-traditional spaces, advocacy for, like I said, the mental health and just getting people to understand that, you know, I don't care how different things may appear on the surface with regard to how we're made up the makeup of who we are as human beings uh, there's so much more commonality there than there is difference and there's so much room and opportunity to kind of just have these conversations like we're having now getting um, ourselves positioned to learn each other to learn what makes each other tick and help one another just move um, the things that matter to all of us forward, the abundance. And I've seen it, I've experienced it, not having or thinking that I was operating in a space of extreme lack. At 20 years old with three kids, all you can see is black, you know? But then you start seeing how things just work themselves out. And now you, you know, as you know, I'm 45 years old and my mind tells me, you know what? As opposed to there being so much lack, there's equal or greater abundance. There's so much for everybody. I mean, you see a thousand people podcasting. There's 36,000 contractors in the country. We, and there's still room for 36,000 more and there would still be abundance. You know what I mean? It's just the perfect, I think, mindset to remove anything that would keep us in these very, very competitive mindsets and enough insight there to... Um, help us chart, you know, start to figure out ways that we can work together and really push one another forward. Um, I think that's what Bryn Mawr is ultimately going to evolve into and where it's ultimately going to land. And I'm just prayerful that my children or my grandchildren will want to continue it on. But if they don't, you know, the goal is to do a, as much effect as much change as I possibly can um, that I can be responsible for and, and hope you know, yeah. that I've made a dent in something. Yeah. Well, gosh, you've done a lot in your young 45 years of life. So I'm, I'm oh, sure well, thank these you. next several decades, you will make an even bigger impact. 
Well, I'm appreciative. I'm looking forward and I'm going to lean into that affirmation. Lady, where is the best place for people to reach out to you, learn about you, maybe hire you as a, bring you on as a speaker? Uh, um, you know, Bryn Mawr Elite, B-R-I-N-M-A-R-E-L-I-T-E at gmail.com is the best way to reach me. I'm leaning into all of the social media platforms now. I still kind of like the traditional talk uh, kind of what we're doing, conversation style um, interactions, but that's the best way. Um, the website is brenmarkinstruction.com and all my contact information is there. I don't even know the social media handles, so I couldn't even begin to tell you, but I'm sure that they're on the site. And um, that's pretty much it. That's how you reach me. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me on the show, Rachel. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Business of You. If you found a little dose of inspiration or learned something new, please leave a review and share it with a friend or even two. Interested in building your brand and business? Tune in next time to The Business of You podcast. And remember, there's only one you. You're the biggest differentiator your business has. Until next time, friends.